welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. In this special episode, we're exploring the history of opera in Britain outside of the capital. This event is part of the Leeds Opera Festival and coincides with the Leeds Opera Story exhibition telling the 300-year story of opera in Leeds. I'm delighted to be joined by three very special and knowledgeable guests for today's chat. Uh, Andy King, hello. How do you do? Thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, Cara McKechnie, hello Cara. Hey, I'm David. Uh, oh, very Northern, I like that. <laughs> this is great. Very, very uh, in tune with what we're talking about today. Um, and Jenny Daniel as well. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Um, now, you're all, you know, kind of uh, academics and researchers in your, in, your, in, your, in your own right. You've all got your different sort of specialisms and area of interest. Um, what I wanted to start off today, actually, is, is kind of with, with you, Andy, because I know you're involved with uh, the Carl Rosa Trust. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're talking about this story of opera outside of London, we have to talk about those big touring companies. Mm. And Carl Rosa perhaps was the biggest maybe the most famous. Um, just tell us a little bit about them, when they were operating, and I kind of suppose about opera touring in that 19th century in, in general. Certainly. Well, the Karl Rose Opera Trust was founded by um, a German immigrant, Karl Rose, uh, with his wife, Euphrasine, and they, they founded this. They, they'd been working together and touring in America, and then when they returned to England, they founded the Carl Rosa, uh, not Carl Rosa Trust, sorry, the Carl Rosa Opera Company in 1873. And the intention was simply to take good quality opera in English around the country. So outside the country. They did have London performances, but the main thrust of their work was to tour the country, taking opera to the people. Euphrosine sadly died the following year in 1874, but uh, the company is still the most successful, longest running opera touring company in British history. Gosh, yeah, yeah, quite the accolade. I mean, Carl Rosa was the, the most famous company, I think, I think probably. Um, but, you know, there were was, was so many at this period. It was just jam-packed with all sorts of companies. You know, Carl Rosa, Doily Carr, obviously, they did Gilbert Sullivan, Blanche Cole, the Fruin, the Denhoff Company. You know, there were, there were so many. And their repertoire was so varied, which what kind of astounded me, you know, looking. When they went to a theatre, they, they packed a lot in. Um, so I was just looking this morning at Carl Rosa in 1915. This was a typical week. Monday, Cavan Pag, Tuesday, Hoffman, Wednesday, Carmen, Thursday, Aida, Friday, Don Giovanni, Saturday, Matinee of Hoffman, and a Saturday evening of the Bohemian Girl, and then you pack up, and on Monday, you're, you're somewhere else. Um, I mean, what do we know about how these productions looked and, and sounded? Because that is a very heavy schedule for one company to be doing kind of, you know, week in, week out. It is, and I should think that they were variable. I think musical standards were always very high. Uh, I mean, um, I mean, obviously, we can look to reviews and so on for exactly what people saw and heard, but in terms of the artists that, um, that Carl Rosa engaged, we can be sure he was uh, employing really top-notch, first-class artists. And some names that are familiar across the board, I mean, these were versatile artists. Uh, for, you know, uh, it's sort of almost in the repertory fashion, they would take more than one role. Um, but their versatility stretched even further. So Derwent Lely, for example, worked for Carl Rosa in serious operatic roles, but also created roles with Gil Gilbert and Sullivan at the Doily Cart Opera Company. 
That does seem to be something that has, has kind of gone out of fashion, I suppose, that people would might do a bit of GNS and they might do a bit of ARC and they might do a bit, have a, 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 bit, a, bit of, a bit of this and that. I mean, you know, kind of look, looking at that variety, I mean, is that is that something that we, we'll come on to this a little bit more later, but that we kind of still have nowadays? Or, you know, I suppose, you know, kind of what, what did that variety bring as kind of being as part of that? I think it was probably the heyday of the sort of mixed bill of opera and that continued for a long time and obviously regional companies, particularly Opera North, Scottish Opera, Welsh National Opera still have very extensive tours and it's a sort of mixed bill then, they, you know, they, they bring their current season and show different operas for a week so uh, you could say that that is based on uh, audiences just wanting something different every day and, and also the expectation that um, there'll be a limit to, you know, showing the, the same production three times. Mm. Uh, there'll be a limit to, you know, what people want to see um, and limitation of audiences maybe as well. Mm. That's a very interesting point about audiences and needing to change the programme. Yeah. I mean, again, something that's definitely what we'll talk about when we go to the um, early 1700s and having that, that variety. But in terms of touring and audiences, obviously in the 19th century, we have particularly the expansion of the railroad, which means that touring is a lot easier, but also actually the audiences can start to congregate in, in these, these big places. Uh, I mean, I suppose, how did that a big question, the kind of industrial revolution really kind of change, I suppose, how opera looked and toured for, for these companies? I think touring kind of started with the Industrial Revolution, didn't it, in, in a big way, in that this, this kind of like outreach to the working classes and trying to get people out of the pub and into the, you know, into this kind of, um, this age of improvement, giving them something that was supposed to be good for them. And it's a very sort of paternalistic thing, look from, looking from today, if we look back, it seems to be quite, um, yeah, a paternalistic way to go about things, not particularly democratic. But it certainly had its benefits. Mm -hmm in that people were offered these kind of great things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to see. So I think it's very much tied in with the industrial revolution and people moving to the towns and all that, that kind of factory uh, work and, and those sort of migrations in. And I think disposable income as well, mm -hmm. you know. Although sometimes it was free, wasn't it? They, yeah, they often. Just, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's kind of um, improvement, but also leisure time, I think, which, mm. which becomes and you, that, that's sort of all stages of history, really, even prehistoric. Yes, the need um, for novelty and variety. Yeah, and, and the, the time and the, the kind of resources to create things rather than just surviving, and uh, culture kind of rising in all its variety uh, along the way. So, yeah, I think... And, and there's also the, the, this idea of the, um, the festivals that come out of the cathedral tradition and into the new town halls with the mm. construction of those with the Industrial Revolution as well. So there are these sort of new venues. Uh, mm. I can't remember what somebody called Leeds Town Hall, the Metropolitan Cathedral or, or something like that, um, that you could now put all these things on and invite people in and put things on for a penny or for free or... Or, or for, for whatever for whatever reason. In fact, the Jewish community uh, were invited in. The sort of Jewish concerts were put on, and all sorts of things like that. The, the people who migrated in as mill workers. Mm -hmm. So all these things kind of tie up together in that people are very much invited in and, and sort of given this um, paternalistic gift of this sort of cultural um, artifact. Mm. It's the roots of cultural democracy, isn't mm. it? Like you say, yeah. it's kind of deciding what the good culture is for them. Yeah. And then making it available, but there's immense value in it nonetheless, I think. Yeah. Now, that's a very interesting point about 
venues because I mean my head's very much in the Leeds opera story obviously but you know I mean Leeds for for many many decades into the middle of the 19th century you know only had one kind of very small theatre in terms of how do we tour opera and show people if you haven't got a venue that can accommodate an orchestra or a chorus or, or whatnot that does kind of limit I suppose what people might see so you know you know whether it's philanthropy or the civic investment or whatever it might be actually you know those building of those venues when the opera could do uh, more things or, or different things and actually can accommodate these 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 companies um, just kind of having a look at that Rosa program it's a very familiar program apart from the the Balf the Bohemian girl and um, we, we sort of think the opera by British composers sort of you know could have paused with Purcell and started again with Britain um, <laughs> but there was you know there was some very popular now whether it was Balf or Wallace or you know, kind of Bishop as well, well um, and so many more I mean Carl Rosa the company is was instrumental in the uh, promotion of works by British opera composers of the time. And uh, I mean, uh, premiered operas by Stanford, premiered, premiered operas by, um, oh, I'm not sure Edward Loder, but certainly by um, Corder and by uh, Ambrose, oh, not Ambrose Thomas. Um, do I mean Ambrose Thomas? He wrote Esmeralda, and I've never. It might be Ambrose Thomas. I've forgotten his name, uh, but in, you know they were really had strong links with the leading English composers of the day, and were taking these operas around. Not you know they weren't just being done in London. These were being wasn't one of was it Stanford's. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten. It may have been the Travelling Companion, which had its first performances in Leeds. Uh, it might potentially yes. start the festival. Uh, possibly, I can't remember off the top of my head. But I mean, not just with British composers. The Rosa gave the first performance, the first British performance of La Boheme with Puccini in the audience. Oof. You know, and that was in Manchester, wasn't it? Was it was in Manchester. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, very, very interesting there about the, the, the repertoire, but also as well, you mentioned Carl Rose about doing operas in English, mm. um, which uh, some may disagree, but there does seem to be a little bit of a sense nowadays of that being a little bit looked down upon. Maybe it's kind of coming back again, but certainly this idea that opera should be in the, the you know, that kind of original language is, you know, certainly what you want to see is that the, the, the Royal Opera House or whatnot certainly wasn't like that, you know, 100 years ago. And that idea of opera in English for the people is definitely something that comes through as we start to look at Sadler's Wells and where Sadler's Wells eventually ends up, I, saw, I suppose, in Leeds. Um, tell us a little bit about Car, or I suppose that kind of Sadler's Wells tradition kind of coming through to start to look at the subsidised companies and that idea of opera in English and why that's important. Yeah, it's a really interesting axis that starts at the very end of the 19th century, I suppose. And um, Jenny mentioned that the temperance movement had a part to play in converting quite rowdy, pubby music halls um, into, you know, recital halls at first, or spoken word, and then gradually a move to theatre, and then gradually a move to musical recitals, concerts with small ensembles. A very organic and quite long development initially. Um, and it needed particular personalities to, to shape the operatic landscape as we know it now. And by that I sort of mean the, uh, I suppose, the top-down approach a little bit, that we have uh, five year-round subsidised companies in the country and um, people call the big six, and I suppose they add Glyndebourne to that, mm. don't they, which isn't subsidised but has a touring... Well, the, the tour's subsidised. The tour's subsidised, yeah, so there's a, there's a mixed model with Glyndebourne. Um, so the roots are with the old Vic in London, 
and uh, Lillian Bayliss is the, the strong personality who brought the kind of operatic metamorphosis around. Um, in the 30s, she had the view that Sadler's Wells, old large theatre in the north of London, should be the kind of northern equivalent to the old Vic and also, you know, a bigger flexible space. And initially, the idea was to alternate theatre and opera between the two houses, and it very quickly settled on um, the old Victor Theatre, later turned into the National Theatre. That's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sadler's Wells turned into what we now know as English National Opera. Um, so in the 30s, this was hatched. Bayliss died soon after, probably um, not helped by the relentless fundraising that she had to do. I, I know as a fundraising consultant, relentless fundraising, it <laughs> you, you, wears you, you down. You know what it's like. You know what it's wears like. Wears you down. Yep. So, um, however, there was a permanent company um, alongside Covent Garden for the first time ever. Um, and again, I think the fortunes were changed in the war when the value of regional touring mm. first got established in a, in a really, really big way. Because obviously <clears throat> London houses couldn't be used at that time. So small companies, uh, you know, five in the chorus, five in the orchestra, um, a varying cast of soloists, everybody multitasking, um, incredibly hand-to-mouth, incredibly enterprising, and on an absolute shoestring. And they went everywhere. I mean, they covered 90 venues. Um, mainly in the north of England, and community halls, churches, outdoor spaces, and literally kind of making their way through the rubble after an attack. Um, so that was seen as valuable by the state. There was no Arts Council in those days, and schemes like ENSA and KEMA will be familiar to some people. Um, and when there was the big push after the war, for uh, kind of welfare, we, we need the infrastructure of a welfare state and culture was included in that. So that's when the Arts Council was first established and opera was in its portfolio right from the start, although none of the companies were regularly subsidised mm. as they are now. Um, they had to keep asking, you know, they had to keep putting in what we would call project grants or capital grants uh, now. So um, why am I sort of going so far back? It's because English National Opera had the responsibility to perform opera in English, that's what they still do, and also to cover the entire country with touring. And that was difficult. They had two companies that uh, alternatively toured, and then sometimes one small company, one big company, and it became a massive strain. And, you know, the sets, of, uh, of the big stages in London didn't fit into regional theatres. Um, travel and the, the general wear and tear wasn't seen as satisfactory. And the Arts Council got it from both sides, really. They got it from Leeds and Manchester people saying, you know, you must provide, we, we pay taxes, you must provide us with our own opera company. Um, and, you know, what they did just wasn't seen as right, but it cost a lot of money anyway. So, with the help of the Arts Council, which sounds amazing, but, you know, with the help of the Arts Council, Opera North as an idea was hatched. Um, and it, again, the big personality, which in this case was Lord Harwood, who ran English National Opera in, in London, and is, of course, based at Harewood House as well, was, sorry, sadly died 10 years ago, um, and so Leeds was kind of a bit of an obvious choice. And the Grand, the Grand Theatre, 
which was founded off the back of, you know, Leeds is a city of status in the 19th century, huge money coming in from the textile industry. And um, it needs a theatre to befit that status, and that was the Grand Theatre. And it quickly pulled most of the touring work, as you say in your super exhibition as well. Um, So that's 1878, and Opera North is founded in 1978, so at the 100th anniversary of the Grand, and has kind of had that as its base ever since. And it cost a little bit more money than the touring, but the results were invariably much more satisfactory. And it became independent of English National Opera. It was English National Opera North, Enon, to start with. And then within three years, it was independent. And as a, almost like a rocket boost <laughs> from the mothership, ENO. And it, um, it never kind of had the opera and English policy. It decides on a project by project basis. So uh, it does perform in English, but it does perform in you know what, what, whatever language befits the particular production or the particular concept. So yeah, that's that's 42 years hence, but it's still the youngest of the big UK mm. opera companies. And it's the, the only one that emerged in a fully hatched way, ready to go. All the others came through community initiatives, festivals, temporary, seasonal opera, etc. So Opera North is quite unusual. And um, yeah, it's alive and kicking, even though, like all companies, it's had to adapt a lot in the last year. Mm. I mean, it's very interesting there. So you, you mentioned 1878 Leeds Grand Theatre. And apologies, listeners, it's going to be very Leeds-focused, but, you know, that's where we are. No, that's right. Tonight, Leeds Grand Theatre launches. In week two, Carl Rosa come. They do a week of opera starting with Trovatore and Lily of Kelani and, and all sorts of bits and bobs. A hundred years later, we've got the start of Opera North, the big six companies. It's all about subsidy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, not something that I don't think Carl Rosa would have been uh, familiar with in the, in, the, in the slightest, all of these commercial entities. Big question, how do we go from all of these commercially viable touring companies to being reliant on uh, an arts council for you know, kind of essentially five big companies that, that are responsible for the majority of, of output. You mentioned some of the factors there, Cara, but I don't know if there are any other broad brushstroke ideas as to kind of what, how that journey sort of... Uh, you've all started staring at me. <laughs> I, I, it's a very interesting case, isn't it, with, you know, opera and its relevance and where it is in time and who is going to it. Um, I suppose people say now that we need more subsidy for the arts to survive because ultimately the materials to produce these things are more expensive. Artists want to make a good living and they're often contracted to opera houses. And also, are the audiences large enough to sustain these companies? And where have they come from? If I mean, if uh, Carl Rosa, I, it was his, even at the, well, not towards the, the company eventually closed in 1960 because they weren't making the money that they needed to survive so they folded Uh, which means that at some point in time there was a dwindling in in operatic interest amongst the public uh, unless you had lots of money and could go to the season at Glyndebourne in which case you know you had your ticket and you went regularly and it wasn't so much about going to support the opera but about being seen at Glyndebourne uh, of which I'm guilty I love to go to Glyndebourne Um, uh, but opera in this country has always been um, whilst enjoyed I think slightly viewed with suspicion 
Mm. Um, you know, we, uh, if you look at the 18th century and all the Italian and Spanish artists coming over here and working for Handel and Pauper and the mm. two rival companies in London, by 1728, which was the premiere of the Beggar's Opera, these then homespun English entertainments are poking fun at mm-hmm. opera. Mm-hmm. So there's always been a slight suspicion, and there were poems written about these, who are these castrati, you know, these mm-hmm. weird people who sing and are absolutely enormous. Mm-hmm. And even then, opera was very expensive. The opera was much more expensive than going to a straight play, for example, by something I think as up to as much as five times the cost of a ticket. Mm-hmm. And there was always investment, wasn't there? I mean, I don't think it, it wasn't always the state, but people, you know, you'd have a wealthy investor. So Ernst Denhoff, for example, put a lot of money in himself and then, of course, just went bankrupt because he didn't really have it. So yeah. the, there were all these stories of things that sort of pop up and people invest and then, then they sort of die down. Mm-hmm. Subscribers. Right. Subscription tickets and, royal, you know, regal yeah. patrons. Yeah, I mean, that's how buildings came about often, by, mm-hmm. by public subscription and that kind yeah. of transferred onto ticket, ticket sales as well. Um, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm declaring an interest here. I'm, I'm half <laughs> German and I was brought up with the German repertoire system. Um, and, um, you know, so I'm not proud about everything that my other home country does and has done, but I'm very proud of that infrastructure that they've managed to preserve from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago when it was a feudal structure and there are between 82 and 86 opera companies in Germany they're all publicly subsidized to a great degree and they're part of um, the state's education stroke entertainment mission and they form a central part of civic life as well both the buildings which companies inhabit permanently um, but also the output so you know people identify with it people get really annoyed about it people take part in a way that I haven't always seen them taking part in the UK although I must say Opera North has a core um, of fantastically loyal audience as do a lot of the other regional companies and the touring operas of course as well um, so by that happy accident the fact that you know the, the feudal system didn't survive in other ways but it did in terms of the theatre means that miraculously that's managed to stay intact and was a very key ingredient in the post-war re-education which you know was led by the allied forces as well so you know reinventing reimagining what a nation could be after you know catastrophic failure uh, up to 1945 so um i'm a great believer in this i must say and i'm a great believer in an ecosystem of different sized companies. Um, Mm. I'm often on panels where I'm defending this system because opera is so forbiddingly expensive. Opera cannot support itself. It's never been able to. And there are no profits, (laughs) nothing of the kind. And other organizations get peeved about this because they see um, opera as taking away what they could do to establish a broader base. But the advantage of having a company with a skill set and, you know, a varied output musically and in lots of other ways in a city, it just spreads out. You know, it spreads out to local ensembles, choirs, choral societies, teaching Leeds Conservatoire, etc. Um, and there's such a healthy interaction between the large ones and the small ones, ideally. It doesn't always work brilliantly, but... Generally speaking, I think, you know, it's such a boom 
that um, yes, of course, it needs to be subsidised. I mean, I mean, Jenny, is it is it as simple as, as Andy was sort sort of saying there that essentially the audiences have have gone elsewhere? Opera companies now not only need to be subsidised, but as you said, Cara, kind of change, I suppose, who they are and what they do a little bit. Yes, the production of operas, but they have to have a greater. Yeah. Educational civic role. I mean, should, is, yeah. Do you think it is just that audiences have, have gone and opera has to take on a bit of a different, you know, output in order to, to be relevant? I think I think it's uh, so to rewind a little bit. I think it's more helpful to think of the institutions being subsidised than the art form because essentially what happens is that the the an institution or, or a venue becomes a sort of centre of um, a portfolio organisation, for example, so the centre of. Um, Arts Council funding and then that organisation it might be Opera North for example which has opera at the core but then it has a responsibility because of that public funding to then spread those kind of spider legs out and, and, and put it all you know encompass all the forms mm. so what then happens is that an institution is able to um, assist in the development of forms that might not be very commercial. Now you get popular based music that's not very commercial, folk based music that's not very commercial, and they're all on the sort of outreaches. Um, we don't need to worry about Andrew Lloyd Webber or somebody like that, financially that looks after itself, but, but there are forms that are, are not commercially viable in, in a similar way, not to the extent as, as opera is not commercially viable on its own terms. So if you think of that sort of centre of funding, then um, it, it's an ethical responsibility, essentially, isn't it, that you then um, bring in a, a variety of what will appeal to people and what will, you know, people will be able to access and that sort of thing. But with Opera North, for example, opera is always at the core, so that means that you can then put on the productions, the foreign language productions, the things that might, the, the contemporary opera, the things that might not be particularly... Um, commercially, well, even more less commercially viable. Even, sorry, even <laughs> less commercially viable, um, and that can be done to a standard that is, you know, world class. Um, so yeah, funding has has outreaching arms essentially. Hmm. Um, I, I want to go back to a, a character you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that I've heard, Stenhoff, is one of my, my kind of favourite characters. I mean, he was the first man to bring the, the ring cycle to venues outside of London and, and Edinburgh. Went to Leeds, it went to Manchester, um, and went to Birmingham as, as well, and he mounted a couple of tours in the early 1900s. I mean, tell us a little bit about kind of Denhoff's project. And again, is that idea of the ring cycle coming to the regions, uh, I suppose, kind of a, a, a pivotal point where opera kind of reaches a certain, I don't know, kind of uh, scale kind of in the in the UK. Is that a kind of a, an important point? Think? It, I think it is an important moment. Yeah. So Denhoff is Austrian and he, he, he was he didn't have, he wasn't particularly um, wealthy or anything like that, but he managed to kind of get this money together and fund this um, company and he borrowed people from singers from Covent Garden I think he had a lot of musicians from the Scottish Opera so he put this thing together and kind of did it under his own back now obviously unfortunately it didn't really last very long because <laughs> uh, the funds ran out but during that period he managed to bring the, uh, the ring cycle the whole thing to Leeds in 1911 and again in 1913 and actually if you go to the library there is an original programme in, I think it's in the, in the family history section or something. I rang <laughs> up and asked them, they found it for me and it's there. Um, and so this, this, this idea that you could bring the ring cycle to a regional theatre 
um, is, is just incredible really because it's so big. Now, when Opera North did the ring in starting in 2013, they didn't do it in the Grand Theatre because they wanted a full-scale, musically a full-scale production. So they went to the town hall and, and the entire orchestra's on the stage and you've got everything there. Um, Denhoff took it to the Grand and he reduced the size of the, the orchestra, essentially. So it is sort of compromised in that way, but people were able to see it and to access the whole thing within the week. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a pivotal moment. And then, of course, what happens is that in terms of um, Germanic culture, um, we go very much off it after the war, and then there's all this sort of propaganda saying, well, you know, German culture's terrible, these people are awful, um, we're not, so nobody puts it on. And then in, it comes back in the 70s with um, English National Opera, which is, again, something that springboarded the um, yeah, start shed, isn't it? of yeah. Opera North. You know, if you've got a ring cycle, you must be doing something right, therefore, OK, you mm. can have your own company kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that... the but, but people didn't particularly refer to that, that first one. Um, and I think maybe that's something to do with sort of this, this idea of being a first, you know, and I don't know if, if anyone would have seen it in 19... 13 and then in the 70s, I'm not sure, but there were certainly people that saw it in the, the recent production who'd also seen it in the 70s and there were people writing blogs and things like that saying about how they'd sort of compared these two experiences and it was a really lovely thing to watch mm-hmm. actually, this sort of unfolding of like personal history and, you know, sort of people, people frame their lives around it and say, oh, well, I, you know, I saw this one and my son was uh, however many years old and I, oh, I missed that one because... Um, my wife was in labour or something like that. But I've had these conversations with people and they will tell you, you know, where they were up to in their life according to when they'd seen that ring cycle in the 70s and then, and then having then seen this one now. So, um, Just to add to that, I think both WNO and Scottish Opera and uh, adding ENO onto that as well, mm-hmm. it's like coming of age for an opera company. Mm-hmm. You know, like you say, if yeah. you're doing something yeah. right, you can, put on, you can put on a ring cycle without either going bankrupt or you know, suffering catastrophic fa- failure in artistically. But it's woven into the mythologies, I think, of, mm-hmm. of all uh, five British larger subsidised company, whether they were able to pull this off and whether they were able to just kind of pull out all the stops, basically. Mm-hmm. And I have 100 musicians on stage, seven harps in Rheingold, etc. <laughs> Doing any kind of Wagner seems to bring with it this, yes. this sense of... Uh, and, and audiences were not... I mean, by the time rings were being done, audiences were not unfamiliar with Wagner. No. Carl Rosa was taking Lohengrin around and he was taking the Flying Dutchman, mm-hmm. you know, having given the first performances mm-hmm. in this country of those operas. So, you know, this culmination in the ring cycle is, you know, I don't think they ever attempted a Parsifal, but uh, which is equally as mm. gargantuan in terms of its scale. Yeah. And, and certainly when, when Dunhoff was, was doing his, his ring, you know, you, you read a lot in the, the Yorkshire Post about people were, they were incredulous. You know, you, you're not going to get an audience in Leeds for a ring cycle. You know, why is it coming here? You know, um, I think a lot of that also is that sort of Leeds always wanting to put itself down. But, you know, that, that was very much the, the narrative kind of go, going into it. And it was eventually a success in 1913. He went bankrupt. But for one year, yeah, yeah he achieved tremendous things. Wagner yeah. um, is also something of a cult, however. So, yes, yeah. this is... Maybe maybe it's being done in Leeds, but if your audience is probably coming oh, from much further. It is. I mean, I certainly have friends that travel the world for Wagner productions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about, oh, this is for a local audience. 
Mm. You know, if a ring was being done in, in Leeds now, people will come from Manchester and Scotland. And back then, I presume, with the availability of transport, mm. people would probably have thought, well, this is very mm. exciting. That's one of my favourite things in the old um, programmes and playbills you see is at the bottom where they have all the latest train times. Yeah. You know, you can come and see this and I can prove that you can get back to Bradford and Manchester because of the 10 you know, all yes. that, you know. Well, Glyndebourne still publishes the rail times yes. on their website yes. so that you can plan yes. your trip. Um, my dad, who was stage manager on the ENO ring, used to say that Reginald Goodall, who wanted to get away to his weekend residence, would be notably faster than uh, <laughs> his Tempe if it was a Friday. You've got a, you've got a conduct to go to Deborah pretty, pretty fast if you want to get the last train. Um, I want to go again, kind of back a long time in, uh, in time I mean something you mentioned at the, the very uh, start of the discussion was about singers and kind of having specialisms and doing lots of different things you know if we go back to the early 18th century obviously in London we have Handel and, and getting in the famous singers of the day mm -hmm. outside of London we do have opera that's very popular but it's all this English ballad opera they wouldn't have known these Handel operas and wouldn't know them for a very very long time um, and as part of these operas you know whether it was uh, you know John Gay or, or, or Frederick Lamb or Thomas Arne, who was incredibly popular, it was quite rare to have an opera singer. You were someone that did plays, you might do pantomimes, you, you, might, you might do a, an opera as well. You mentioned the Beggar's Opera earlier. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, you know, a, 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 a mid sort of 18th century audience member outside of London would have kind of understood opera to be, I suppose? What, what was it? Well, I suppose they would simply have thought, I mean, by that time, I imagine that really audiences were equating musical entertainment with uh, out of the legacy of travelling minstrel shows and things like that. But it was also a much less formal thing than we imagine now. Audiences would not have turned up and expected to sit in their seat dutifully for two and a half hours and watched. They would have sat, they would have talked, they would have shouted, they may have felt sang along if they recognised the tunes, particularly in the Beggar's Opera, which is, features lots of tunes people may have recognised. Um, I mean, there are certainly, you know, stories of opera being, just to go back into the capital for a moment, you know, the theatres may have had boxes and you would sit there and have your dinner and they say, oh, I, I know this singer, and you open the little curtains and you sit and you applaud and then that's their bit done and you close and you go back to yeah. eating. You know, the, 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 the audiences would not necessarily have been engaging with something that we... Now, I imagine if, a tw if we, somebody took one of us to a performance of a regional or even in the capital performance of an opera in that time, we would be the ones that were surprised. Mm. And if we were to take them and bring them now and said, you're going to sit there for three hours and watch the first act of Tristan... you know, they're going to be very confused about what <laughs> is going on. So... There's a different approach to engagement mm. with, with music. And I should think in the provinces, it was probably even more um, uh, just extraordinary experience for these people. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you all in a little bit for your, uh, you know, your kind of top fun factoid. So if you forgot I asked you about that, now's the time to think about it. Um, but what were you, what were you saying there? Well, I think one of my favourite things, kind of looking at the, the, uh, the history, was in uh, the early, about 1806, 
Um, at the, the Leeds Theatre, they'd usually have three shows on an evening, and you could get a cheaper ticket if you just went in for the last one. Uh, and someone wrote in the paper that they wanted this stopped because it was just full of drunk men <laughs> coming in for the cheap ticket to see the final thing on the on the evening, you know, and kind of just making absolute kind of ruckus and, and whatnot. Um, you know, I mean, as, as you say, just the, the theatre going experience in general, not just opera, was 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 kind of com completely uh, different in kind of kind of those days. Um, I mean. I suppose it, it kind of a, a similar question, but kind of suppose what how, what was opera thought of? We talked about you know Italian opera kind of being look, looked down on in some circles, but what was you know kind of the well, perception of opera? Italian opera was that it was suspicious. <laughs> it was also um, uh, uh, people, uh, certain people, the artistic community certainly were extremely aggravated by it because it was so expensive. Uh, you know, even Handel's and the, his immediate rival companies were pretty much bankrupt by the time the season had started because the imported singers, Sensino, Farinelli, Faustino, they were commanding exorbitant fees. And if you were to look at something like the libretti of The Beggar's Opera by John Gay, or you were to look at the works of uh, John Frederick Lamp, particularly in his Pyramus and Thisbe, the libretti lampoon this. They comment, they actually, in, in terms of Lamp as Pyramus and Thisbe, they say this homespun English entertainment is the, is the phrase he uses so much better because it's, it can be done without these exorbitant fees of foreign singers who could be papist. <laughs> you know, these, these foreign singers are not only foreign, but they could be Catholic. You know, it's, mm. it's, uh, you're bringing in a lot of uh, prejudice, I think is, is a, a, an important word. Mm. You know, yeah. it would be viewed with prejudice. It was foreign, it was other, it was... There might be beautiful tunes, but why can't they sing them in English? Mm. Because we don't know what they're singing about. We've no clue. And aside from that, they look weird. <laughs> you know, these castrati who, of course, physically were altered and this had an effect on their growth, these enormous people. <laughs> so they didn't understand the language, so they had no idea what was being done. They could be papist. And uh, they looked weird. It was, it was, I think there was it's definitely... It's a real heady concoction. It's a real heady concoction. <laughs> and unless you're, you know, you're really going and just interested in the music... It was much more than that. It was the whole thing. This was a night out. Mm. This was like watching the TV and, and commenting on, uh, you know, oh, that's a bit weird, and what's she wearing? You know, it was so much more of... Othering. Uh, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm, we're going to start sort of uh, wrapping up, up a little bit now. So I'm, I'm just kind of interested, before we have the fun factoids, in um, kind of thinking about some, some of those things from the kind of the, the past, those kind of past few hundred years, and actually is, are there kind of things that we could learn from it that would kind of help us today or that might kind of inform the present? I mean, I think the thing that I think about is thinking about those, those early English ballad operas that went to, you know, Leeds and Manchester, which was something like, for example, Thomas and Sally by Thomas Arne, probably the most popular opera of that century, mm -hmm. which is four singers. It's a couple of musicians. It's very similar to The Wandering Scholar that we've just, just performed. It's about a, a husband and a wife and someone's trying to woo the wife away. It's uh, normal people in English. It's very small. It's an hour long. Um, 
and this idea that opera sort of got ginormous uh, with the, the, the big touring companies and the big theatres and actually now we're in a place where opera is maybe gaining some of that more variety and um, intimacy that it had 300 years ago. I, you know, for me, I think that's an interesting arc that we might be sort of getting to the, to the bottom of. I don't know if any of you kind of think of some of those things from the, the past and how it reflects on that. Something that always crosses my mind, I mean, these, those children that are watching your opera today are absolutely spectacularly well behaved. But, um, you know, sometimes children's opera, young people's opera, that kind of thing, you'll get a bit of rowdiness, you'll get a bit of chatter. And I always take myself back to that kind of 18th century idea that actually that's fine. <laughs> if you need to play cards instead of watch it for five minutes, then that's absolutely fine. And, you know, we can make those provisions for youngsters, but. Um, it's an interesting kind of parallel that, that that used to be the case for everybody, especially the well-to-do kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I think we're at a very interesting point at the moment because we have to look backwards in order to re-establish opera companies' relationship with smaller, more transient, uh, shorter uh, periods of, of playing less money and also the kind of the flexibility of venue as well. I mean... All companies have had to grasp the concept of outdoor performance, of mediatised performance, and that's the kind of looking forward bit. So we're at a very strange pivotal point at the moment where everybody's kind of looking back to basics in some ways because obviously accounts and circumstances and small audiences, but also looking forward in terms of the opportunities that digital technology provides the sector. And um, I think it's immensely exciting. And I hear the voices who are saying, you know, live is everything. You have to be there in the space. And I'd agree. I think I will never in my life have the feeling I first had when uh, the eight Valkyries in the rehearsal space in Opera North started singing eight metres away from me. And, uh, you know, the physical, visceral feeling, that'll stay with me forever. But um, my life would have been pretty rocky over the last year without the immense efforts of companies such as Opera North, but you know, all companies essentially, um, of mediatising their work in very meaningful ways and sometimes in very communicative ways mm. as well. So very, very interesting mm. times for the sector, but that, that is very interesting. I mean, you know, all opera companies are talking about how can digital, you know, reach new audiences, yeah. kind of do different things. I mean, again, maybe, you know, when we had that period when, you know, sheet music started going here, there and everywhere and people would hear them at home or hear them in the pub and that's how, you know, opera, Mozart and whatnot sort of got around. I mean, Absolutely. you know, potentially, you know, maybe digital is, is the new uh, the new sheet music. Um, <laughs> any, any, any kind of learnings from... Oh, yes, I think we're going to have to... I think going forward, we're really going to have to assess what opera means to people today in order to make it a viable thing for the future. How do people engage with it? Do they want to engage with it? Uh, there is a one of our most important uh, opera companies now, which I will not name, who are putting out all their media. And you can tell from the music and the way they are producing their promotion materials that they are trying to appeal to a particular audience group. And they're using um, music on their adverts that these people will not engage with in the actual opera house. So and I think I can't decide if that's a bit sly or, uh, you know, is it trying to get people in? But essentially what I'm saying is they're using more modern music to advertise an art form in an opera house that is essentially performing 18th and 19th century repertoire. Fun fact, please, everybody. Um, I've sort of given my, my fun fact. I'll start, I'll start on the other side with, with Jenny. 
Well done. You said you put fun fact slash story. I did, yes. Story. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. So I, my, my story was that when um, Opera North were in Leeds Town Hall um, and they were rehearsing to go into the Town Hall for, um, I can't remember which one of the ring cycle. Which year? Yeah, can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember being in the rehearsal and the um, tenor saying these tempos are terrible. You know, it's far too far too slow. It needs, needs to speed up. Needs to speed up. And um, the conductor Richard Farn saying, "No, it is what it is. This is what I'm doing." And, and 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 people were confused because it sounded slow. It did sound slow. And you got into that building, and it was perfect because he understood the acoustic and he understood what was going to happen. Um, and that just kind of represented for me this idea that local knowledge, the knowledge of venues, the knowledge of what things do for you as a performance space acoustically, as a space for the audience, um, can actually create what was then described in the press as a world-class performance. So it's the kind of the locality that, that creates mm. that sort of excellence. There's my story. Mm. Very good. Cara? Uh, just a slight, slight story character to this as well. Um, in 1984, the then chair of the Arts Council, William Rees Mogg, published a report, it might have been a white paper, I can't remember, called The Glory of the Garden. And it was based on um, another chair of the Arts Council, whose name I don't recall, saying that the Arts Council should be responsible for few but roses. He had that way of expressing it, that it should be the absolute best culture. And the glory of the garden was an attempt at regionalization, of spreading culture to the regions in a more effective way than had happened before. I still haven't worked out, after all these years of research engagement uh, with the sector, and with Opera North in particular, how he came to the conclusion that Opera North and Scottish Opera should merge. So, you know... <laughs> it's the North, isn't it? You know? uh, yes, exactly. So there, there wouldn't have been, you know, anything between, on, on certain points, there wouldn't have been anything between London and Edinburgh, and that was regionalisation. I don't understand <laughs> it, but I don't have to understand everything. Um, however, there were ingenious schemes by both companies working really closely together, um, and, you know, they fought shoulder to shoulder, they, they kind of made impassioned political pleas and finally in 85 the Arts Council beat a retreat from the plan of merging those two companies and um, Lord Harwood later said that you know if you want to harvest roses you have to risk the occasional stink so there's some odd flower metaphors <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I'm really glad that both companies in some shape or form um, and in healthy shape or forms survived individually absolutely um, and finally Andy um, I've got a little story, I suppose, and it's a more personal one. And it's it's not really a, a fact. It's more a case of the joy of live performance and how things can go so right and wonderful and you can have these massive uplifting experiences and also how these things can go so wrong and <laughs> practically leave you rolling in your seat. And I remember once going to... So this, this story is, is really about the things that can go wrong but that can be very funny in very serious art form and I was once at a performance of Der Rosenkavalier at the Royal Opera House and the Marshalin was wearing this enormous jewel encrusted gown and her opposite Sophie over whom they're practically you know not battling but they both want the same boy Octavian and Sophie was wearing this rather nice little slip 
made of lace and they were on the same on the stage together at the time singing and the marshalling started to move across the stage and Sophie's lace slip had got attached to one of the um, the, jewel, the jewels on there and started to go with it and with absolute deafness she let down unplugged herself and off she went and it was just a, a brilliant moment of this would not be the same watching it on your computer screen or listening to it on a recording. It's one of those great ones. You have to be in the opera house and seeing something. Mm. But as a little fact, it's also interesting to know that Madame Butterfly was originally a flop. Yes. <laughs> um, well, thank you all very much indeed. We always like talking about things outside of London, so it's been great to revel in it um, the, 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 this afternoon. Um, if you're interested in the history of opera in Leeds specifically, uh, you can visit the Leeds Opera Story uk website to learn about the three-digit history of opera in the city, and we do hope that we can extend the project in the future to take on the, uh, the history of opera across the UK more broadly. Uh, many thanks, Andy, for joining us. A pleasure, thank you. Thank you, Cara. It's been great, thank you. And thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you.